Hello, friends of the Makers and Mystics podcast. As we anticipate our upcoming season 10 of the show, I want to continue sharing some of the incredible unpublished conversations I've collected throughout season nine. Today, I have the honor of introducing you to the work of Ryan Diaz. Ryan Diaz is a poet and writer from Queens, New York. He holds a BA in history from St. John's University and is currently completing an MA in biblical studies. His work has been featured in publications like Ecstasis, Premier Christianity, Dappled Things, and Busted Halo. In this bonus episode, Ryan and I talk about poetry, cynicism, and the sacramental imagination. Patrons of the podcast can enjoy additional conversation segments featuring four book recommendations for poets, as well as a recitation of Ryan's poem for those wandering along the way. You can find links to Ryan's work in the show notes of this episode, including his latest poetry collection, Skipping Stones. And if you enjoy the Makers and Mystics podcast, but are not currently a monthly patron, please consider joining our creative collective today at patreon.com slash makersandmystics. Ryan, thank you so much for joining me today on Makers and Mystics. It's an honor to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. I'm really thrilled to talk to you about your background as a poet, your work as a pastor, and also something that you framed as the sacramental imagination. And uh, maybe we'll just dive into the deep end right from the start. I'm really curious to know for you how poetry and the imagination communicate in your life with your faith and with the sacraments. And what does a sacramental imagination mean to you? Yeah, that's, that, that's a phenomenal question. So you got to think about, so let's do like a word study real quick. So the word sacrament is from the Latin sacramentum, which is then like a Latin translation of the biblical Greek word mysterion, mysterion being like a mystery being revealed. And so the sacraments become these symbols and signs, these things revealed. And so there's inherent in the Christian imagination, the Christian story, that ordinary, normal, regular things, things that are mundane, things that are seemingly unimportant can be loaded with meaning and can be loaded with supernatural grace. And so a sacramental imagination would be a view of the world that's not reductionist or materialist, but be a a view of the world that sees the world and then sees God behind it. It's Gerald Manley Hopkins who talks about creation being charged with the grandeur of God. And so the sacramental imagination takes that seriously, that all of creation, as the psalmist says, declares the glory of the Lord, that, that even the most mundane interactions and things can somehow point to the immensity of God. Poetry then connects to that because it's poetry that reveals that to us. 
poetry has fundamentally been about seeing beneath what you'd call like the accidents, accidents of creation, right? Like in Aristotelian metaphysics, the accidents are, are the things that kind of show you the substance beneath. And so poetry gets under those exterior things into those interior, hidden, invisible realities and makes them known to us. And so the poet is kind of the translator of the mystery that lays behind the ordinary. So maybe it's fair to say then that the poet's vocation is to look at the bushes and see which ones are catching fire. Exactly. That, I, I, that, that's such a brilliant image, right? There's this sense in which in, in that story in Exodus, it's, it's this ordinary thing that's imbued with extraordinary properties. And so the poet is looking for the fire. You know, there's this moment where the prophet Elijah, right? You know, he, God's not in the fire. God's not in the whirlwind. He's not in the thunder. He's not in the earthquake, but he's in this still small voice. And so the poet, I think, is uniquely positioned to listen, to, to be a listener who hears and, and, and has eyes to see beyond maybe what the rationalist or the materialist sees. The, the materialist just sees the bush. The rationalist just sees the bush. The, the poet sees beyond it to something more. So let me ask you a personal question then. How does this play out in your own life? How do you train yourself to look for the wondrous in the midst of the mundane of your everyday? Yeah, I think this was a skill that was learned over time. Um, I, I talk elsewhere in an essay I wrote um, about I had kind of had this season of, of intense and deep kind of cynicism and really a cynical approach to the world is off, is often a reductionistic approach, right? It's, it's unable to take things for deeper meaning, right? It kind of, it's kind of rejects any sort of deeper, grander meaning to things. And really it's very hard to be a person of faith. If that's your kind of epistemological approach to things, right? If, if, if you're so cynical and so skeptical that you can't actually take on faith that things might be greater than they seem, it's really hard to then believe in a thing like God. And so me personally, what ended up happening was, is I began to realize that if I was going to actually believe this, if I was actually going to take this thing that I, that I called faith and actually live it in some tangible, real way, that it wouldn't just be play acting, then I would really have to look at the world in a whole new way. And I had to rediscover like, that the world is more wondrous than I realized. And that my skeptical, cynical approach to the world was actually an approach of fear, was actually a response to saying, because if I see more than what's at face value, if I discover that there's more to life than simply what I see, then I have to be confronted by that. And so I had to do the slow work of like, I, there has to be more than this. There has to. I, if I'm going to believe in God, I have to be able to see deeper. Then this is where writing came back into play. And around, so funnily enough, 2020, before the world was radically transformed, I started writing again. I hadn't written for about three years, and it had been a while. And part of my desire to start writing again, and specifically start writing poetry again, was this desire that if I was going to learn to see this way and live this way and respond to the world this way, and then and somehow, re, somehow through that recapture my faith, I was going to have to train myself to see beyond the ordinary, to see beyond the veneer that kind of 
lays across reality. And poetry is was a tool. I began to, as I began writing and reading more intensely again, it began to open up my eyes to the slowing down, the the stepping back, almost kind of like you know kind of having like when you're at, as you're as a kid on, on the beach and you have like that little shovel and the more you dig, right, you just begin to discover things that the sand has kind of washed over. And that was what poetry sort of did for me until I got to a point where I began to realize that there is actually no other way to see the world, that if to truly see the world is to see what is and then also the, the glory hidden under, beneath it. What this brings to mind for me is something I read in regards to children's literature or really just fiction at all, that it requires a willful suspension of disbelief. And even as you were talking about, you've gone through a season of cynicism in your own life. What comes to mind for me is that hidden wonder reveals itself to those who are willing to lay down their disbelief. And then when you began to talk about pace, Man, that just brought to mind for me that pace enables us to see from an exalted perspective. What do you think? Yeah, I, so it's funny. The idea of the poet being kind of this observer requires a certain approach to life, right? It requires a certain like orientation to like how you move through the world. We live in a world now where we've all been kind of positioned to kind of be in the rat race, right? I mean, I live in New York City. I grew up in New York City, but it's not unique to city life. I think because of the advent of the internet and the kind of the instant way in which we engage with just reality, um, that everything, literally the entire corpus of human history and fact and story is at our fingertips, fundamentally changes the way we engage reality. And so the ability to step back, sit back, listen, to be silent, to be alone. We have to think we're in the first time in history where you can be alone and not alone. That you can be in a room by yourself, but if you have that, that screen in front of you, you are not alone. And so I think it's Blaise Pascal. He talks about that all of kind of man's problem stems from his inability to sit in a room by himself alone because that requires us to face ourselves. And so to, to kind of slow down and to have that pace first requires us to shed the kind of cultural way we've been oriented towards like instant gratification and constant stimulation. So we first have to shed that. And then once we do, we then have to sit by ourselves and sit with a, maybe it's a landscape in front of us, or maybe we're just by ourselves with a good book and then face ourselves. And that is incredibly difficult for people born in this time. It wasn't, it wasn't hard for those born a few hundred, few thousand years ago, because you had time, you had space. And even if you didn't have a lot of time and space because of maybe social conditions, when you went to bed and there was no electricity, the lights were off, you had time. Like, you had time to sit and listen and think. And so I think for us, it's part of that kind of vision of recapturing that vision of the world requires a fundamentally new pace, which first, again, it's that casting off the kind of the load we've been given, the severing our ties to the instant and the immediate, and then doing the hard work of sitting in a chair 
in a room by ourselves and facing ourselves or sitting outside in nature and just have it be us in the grand expanse of things and be confronted by it without p- immediately picking up a camera to distance ourselves up, distance ourselves from that moment. It's become a very countercultural way of being. Yeah. It's this almost as if like, I, I remember um, uh, 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 like two, three years ago, like, I'm a person of extreme, so you know I, I I tend to go off the deep end. But I remember one time I was I like I like I bought a typewriter, not to be hipsterish or not to be <laughs> not to be one of those guys, but it was part of this reaction to like I wonder what would change in my writing if like I got rid of all the tools that I've accumulated. Right when I when I sit at a laptop, you I mean you have everything. I'm a huge fan of Grammarly, right? Like, you know, like you, the hard work of like editing and like, you know, look the hard work of even just typing is just so much easier now. So I decided like, I wanted to see what it would be like to just kind of disconnect and to kind of react against. It lasted maybe like a a good few weeks until I realized there's a reason why things have been invented, but the the ethos was there. This kind of like, yeah, it is a reaction. I think a few people are realizing Maybe humans weren't meant for all this stimulation. <laughs> Maybe no human could have fathomed what it would be like to have to have instant access to everything in the world. Right. And we're grappling with both the moral, the kind of anthropological, the spiritual ramifications of this, in which again, like we're in the midst of it. So I remember I had a brief stint as a high school teacher. And so I'm part of the generation that remembers remembers the time before an internet. The internet was a commonplace thing. Like I remember, we got our first home computer. Like I remember when that was a, a big big deal. It was a gateway. I don't know if you remember those. You have like these little. They had these little like cow boxes. They look. It was this weird branding they had. <laughs> and it was um. I remember, so I remember that. Like I remember getting um internet for the first time. And so when I was teaching, it was the first time I met kids who knew nothing but like a life on social media a life in, in front of the world, a life where they literally were getting anxiety because they felt they lived their lives on a world stage and they were 15. And yeah, maybe we're just beginning to realize like this isn't the way. And I think we'll soon discover in the next maybe 40, 50 years, the true ramifications of this. But look at the current mental health crisis among young people and you, there you go, right? It has to be connected to our instant connection to everything. You know, I can't help but think that this is one reason why some of the monastic practices seem to be more appealing, you know, uh, solitude and silence. And these are difficult things uh, to engage, even like you were saying, but at the same time, they seem more necessary than ever, perhaps in some ways, because of what you're talking about. Yeah, it's almost like you have the, like, the pendulum swings one way or the other. And I think when we go to one extreme, the only you can only course correct by trying to, to go back, recapture something. And I think you're right. I think the monastic kind of movement is having its resurgence in partly response to this. I took a retreat at a Holy Cross monastery, which is in upstate New York. Um, beautiful brothers there, the Benedictine order. And, you know, I, I intentionally I cut my phone off. You know, I threw it in my bag and left it in the room with, and it was the first time in my life I realized how many times instinctively I went for my phone. And it, it took being in an environment where I was by myself, in predominantly in silence, except for maybe at meal times when we would chat with the brothers, 
But it was the first time I realized how, like how far gone I was, like how, how, how much I'm attached to these things. And so, yeah, I think the resurgence is a response to, is a response to that. You know, one fascinating thing for me that I've learned about you is that not only are you a poet and a writer, but you're also a pastor. And a pastor in the climate of the past several years is its own story in and of itself. Uh, I'm curious to know how your work as a pastor and your vocation as a poet, how these things relate to one another in your life. It's interesting because I kind of grew up in kind of like the charismatic tradition and I grew up around like big churches. So, you know, the churches I went to in the city were big, you know, like a few thousand plus member churches. So that was like kind of like my experience, my formative experience kind of happened through that. And a lot of, listen, I, you know, for, for what it's worth, there's a lot of beautiful stories there. There's a lot of lessons learned. But one thing I definitely took away when I started then to be in ministry, I remember when I first kind of started is that I had this inherent idea that ministry meant running programs because if I can get a bunch of people in these kind of pre-prescribed programs, I was somehow doing work. It, it, it was busy work. It was challenging. There's a lot of time spent. And then I remember having this interaction with somebody and just realizing that like I had fundamentally stopped seeing them as like as a person, they were another person coming through the pipeline that, you know, you kind of come in, we get you through these different programs, and boom, you're a Christian. Like, thumbs up, here's your certificate, call it a day. <laughs> and, you know, like, there's a, there's, we could do a whole podcast episode on why that's why that, was, that became the model for so long. Sure. But I think we're beginning to see the ramifications of that, and which is that you have a generation of people who no one's walked with. They've taken a bunch of classes. They've read a ton of books. They've been through these kind of like prescribed pipelines. And then they're coming out the other side of them, more confused, more lost, more disenchanted with faith. And so for all the programs you do, like there are people that need to be walked with. And what poetry then was also taught me was that poetry teaches you how to be a phenomenal listener. Because then to walk with people, to, to do the hard work of like, journeying with someone requires a phenomenal amounts of listening. You know, there is a temptation, especially, especially maybe American Christianity, there's a very combative approach to sort of, and maybe it comes from like the, in, in the nineties, you had this big uptick on like the importance of apologetics and things like that. And so really like dialoguing with people really was just code for like having arguments and making sure you win. <laughs> and so, the flip side of that, there was like the actually walking with people and leading them on a journey where they're somehow profoundly connecting with the person of Jesus requires lots of listening. And poetry is all about listening. It's all about observation. It's all about sitting back and letting something speak to you. And then what you what you end up doing as the poet is you're just kind of writing what you're receiving. And pastorally, that has helped immensely in just like reorienting my brain to be like. I'm here to listen to this person so that this person can be known and seen and then to journey with them and then help them to help them kind of give them the gift of poetic sight that will then allow them to see into their situations, maybe pass the things on the surface they're experiencing. There's a great book by a guy, I think his name is Craig M. Barnes. It's called The Pastor as a Minor Poet. 
And it kind of talks about how the pastor and the poet are related because the pastor's job is to bring people into the subtext of reality, much like a poet's job is to bring people into the subtext of reality. And so the job then of the pastor is not simply to give answers or to be a life coach, but to teach people how to see beneath the subtext of their own lives, because that's the space God wants to meet them. That's the space. That's the space the Holy Spirit wants to fill and meet people and engage with people. And so it's why we look at the idea of the incarnation, where God doesn't just solve humanity's problems from from 30,000 feet, but he enters into the mess of it, and people find him there. And by walking and journeying, listening and interacting with people in their day-to-day, everyday existence, he brings about that fundamental transformation they've actually been longing for. Because God could easily have solved the problem up here, but he decides to condescend and descend and to be with and among. And so that's the pastor's job is to do that same kind of incarnational practice with people, bring them into the deep levels of their lives, like the beyond the surface issues, beyond the symptoms to get beyond the, get beyond the fruiting, like get to the roots as much as that sounds like a cliche and to help people explore that area. And that's what poetic vision is. It does this. The poet does the same thing, except the poet just doesn't have a collar or a reverend title, you know? I want to go back to what you said just a little bit ago when you talked about your own experience of walking through cynicism, a season of cynicism, uh, maybe a season where your eyes weren't as open to the wonder that's all around us in the mundane or in the ordinary or in those sub-levels of life that you were talking about. How did poetry or your faith, or maybe a combination of both of those things, how did they play into you reigniting that sense of wonder in your life? How did you get out of the cynicism, I guess? Yeah, I think... Um, just, just <laughs> or like, did you? <laughs> yeah, right, you know, I, I like to tell people, like, I'm a, I'm a recovering cynic in the sense that, you mm-hmm. know, like, probably always will have that core. Um, and whether that's a personality thing, whether that's just being a product of postmodernism, but just like I think I spiraled down into like this kind of cynical pit, I kind of spiraled back up again. Mm-hmm. And I like I like to imagine it almost like, you know, if you ever, ever read like Dante's Divine Comedy, right? You know, he kind of walks through the levels of hell so that he can walk through up the mountain of purgatory. And I think that was that's kind of emblematic of my own journey. It was kind of it was like the descent into the pits. You know, there's this crazy image at the end of Dante's Inferno where they have to like climb up Satan. I'm at the very yeah, lowest right. pits of hell. And <laughs> right. it's such a grotesque, amazing image of like what it is like climb out of cynicism, like climbing through Satan himself. <laughs> and I think that's what happened. I was at this such a deep, dark place where like I, I, I think ultimately I was afraid. I was afraid to lose any sense of control. So when you're afraid to lose control, the easiest thing to do is deflect with questions. I have a therapist friend of mine. He's like, you know, you know what, what people call like, deflection or projection right like you you rather than face the things that are confronting you you kind of deflect you 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 put it off on other people or other things or like even like you see this like our modern political discourse where like what about isms right some a politician will be confronted with a problem and then the response will be but what about so and so and it's like well that well, that's not the question. The question is about you. But we do this thing where we just deflect and we don't want to deal with the actual things that are confronting us. And I think that was ultimately the pit of cynicism, that fear 
that if I were actually to be confronted with these things, I'd radically have to change and transform. To circle out of that, and the way poetry kind of aided in that, is that in the writing of it, also in the reading of it, you get to kind of, in microcosm, have those experiences of awe and wonder that are, that ultimately connect to one's experiences with God. And so it was kind of subtle at first. It was almost, I couldn't, in the beginning, I couldn't articulate it. But as I was writing and as I was reading, I would have these moments of like little moments of transcendence, right? Little moments of like, I remember um, reading, I, I like bought like a beat up. There's a secondhand bookstore not far from, not far from my apartment. You bought like a beat up copy of like Yeats's um, complete poems. And I'm like, like the Lake Isle of Innisfree, right? Just this vision of this lake in the middle of Ireland, where there's this beautiful island that he's going to set up his life there. But then you realize that Yeats isn't actually there, that Yeats is probably back in London where he spent a lot of his time. Cause he says, like, you know, I, 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 you know, I hear it in the pavements gray and then he obviously I hear it in the deep parts core and that he's, that he has this intuitive longing for something outside of his kind of his gray urban existence. And I'm reading that I'm like, wow, like, He's saying what I'm feeling right now, which is like, I'm in this kind of gray, kind of black and white, monochrome existence. But, and I'm scared, I'm scared to, to leave it because it's safe and it feels nice. But like, when I read that poem, it's just a moment of transcendence. Like, man, like, I'm too long for the, for the Lake Isle of Ministry. I too have this, without... Whether I want to admit it or not, I think that's the thing. I was cynical, but like I had these moments of confrontation where like I knew I desired these things whether I liked it or not. And I think every human is the same. Every human desires transcendence. Where they find that transcendence, you know, th that's a debate for for maybe people wiser than I am. But I began to have these moments like I desire these things too. And as I was writing it, and the way poetry sometimes works for, works for me is like you kind of start with an image or an idea. And then you kind of let, let it go and it kind of runs wild. And I'm like, I kept coming to these poems about like these desires for other places and other things. And I had to like stop and think like, what if I let myself into these desires? What if I stop trying to play, you know, palace guard and keeping myself locked away? And so I think you have enough of those little experiences. Then you have to go macro and think, well, like maybe this was what I was afraid of with God all along. That, like, if I could question God or put him in my neat theological boxes, which I was really good at doing, or if, you know, I can question my tradition and I could point out all the things maybe that seemed that didn't line up and, or I can go on a Sunday and be like, oh, see, that sermon's not really accurate and this person's this and that. If I push past all that stuff and, and, and say just God himself, like, maybe this longing for this thing beyond is just that thing, is this thing called God, this person called God. And that maybe if I'm letting myself have these experiences with poetry, like what if I let myself have those experiences with God again and not question them, not try to decode them, but just let awe and wonder wash over me? What would happen? And I think like I kind of spot, slowly but surely spiraled back up. Every poem I read, everything I wrote, I was opening up myself more and more and more until like I kind of had my scales fall away from my eyes moment, which is like, oh, like, you know what I desire? I desire God. God, unadulterated, unfiltered, 
untamed, God himself as revealed through his son, Jesus. That's what I want. And the formulations are nice. And I'm still, I have a library behind me. I'm still a big nerd when it comes to things like theology and philosophy. Those things are good. But now those things don't serve to create boxes that I can keep myself safe in. They serve to further plumb the mysteries. It's, you know, it's the, it's the kind of like, it's the oxygen in the tank that takes you deeper into the depths. Whereas before, it was the walls you kind of put up to kind of box God in. And it was that slow spiraling that got me to a place of like, okay, I'm ready, you know, to believe again. And that's why time and time again, from in that period, until this day, I returned to that verse where Jesus is with that man who wants healing. And he says, you know, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And so that passage goes to show me, I can, Lord, I believe, like, there's never been a moment in my time where I was ever atheistic or may, maybe like borderline agnostic, but like I had I, fundamentally at my core, I said, Lord, I believe, but you really need to help my unbelief. Like I, I need divine grace at work here. And that kind of inner heart position allowed me to kind of spiral back up as I opened myself up more and more and more to like these little glimmers of transcendence through poetry. You know, there's a relationship between the poetic experience and the place of prayer. And I know in my own life, I've often seen a synergy between the two that sometimes I don't know if I'm in the poetic space or if I'm in the prayerful space. And I don't really know if there's a difference. But I've often been fascinated about the passage in Genesis when it says that Adam fell into a deep sleep mm. and then that's when Eve was formed, that word deep sleep is actually the word, the Hebrew word for trance. It means he was in a trance. He was in an altered state of mind. And what's interesting is that on the other side of that experience, that's when the first poetry uttered by a human being in scripture is seen, is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. It's when Adam was full of awe and wonder at the creation of Eve. And I love that passage so much because within it, I see the poetic state. I see the prayerful state. I see contemplation and communion with God, with the divine spirit. And I see creativity happening on a massive level. And so I'm curious for you as both a poet and a pastor, talk to me about the poetic experience and how that influences your prayer life and then how your prayer life influences your creativity. Yeah, that, that's a phenomenal kind of way to connect it to. I think when we go look at the Christian scriptures and in its totality, then you look specifically at the Hebrew scriptures, look at the Psalms, that for most of Judeo-Christian history, poetry has formed the central prayer rhythms of Jews and Christians for thousands of years. So there's always been this connection between prayer and artistic expression. And I think part of that is, is that artistic expression specifically poetry and more so music, you know, like you kind of had in, in Greek and then later on like medieval kind of like aesthetic thought, right? Like you kind of like music was the highest art because music is unto itself, right? Music doesn't reference anything. Um, kind of poetry was the next thing. And then you kind of had like, you know, it, it would cascade down from there. 
But like there's this connection between like the arts and prayers because what the arts do is they take on the groanings that cannot be put into words. You know, there's that great part in St. Paul where he talks about, you know, like the, you know, the groanings that only the Holy Spirit can kind of comprehend and understand and know. And like an artist somehow functions similarly to that in that it's why we weep when we hear a beautiful piece of music, right? Like nothing has to be said. No ideas have to be articulated, but we resonate with it in this powerful moving way. And same thing goes for, for poetry or, or, or great literature or a, a beautiful piece of art, right? Gets at parts of us that our reason doesn't necessarily rationalize. And I think it was, you know, the, the, the poet and priest Malcolm Guy T kind of riffing off kind of C.S. Lewis, in which the idea of like, you know, the imagination is also a truth bearing faculty that through our imaginations, we can get at truth that maybe our reason can't reason its way towards. And I think when we pray, prayer operates in the space of paradox and longing. It operates in the space of doubt and fear. And it operates often in situations and places where the rational thing doesn't make sense. And so sometimes only words or lack of words, for better thereof, that we have is artistic expression. And that the only thing we can do to put our greatest longings, our deepest fears out into the world is through these kinds of artistic expressions that be go on like rationalized reason thought like you know people often joke you know like prose is a denigration of poetry right like but because in poetry it's not even about what's being said exactly sometimes you can read poems not know everything that's happening in the poem yet be utterly impacted because it's getting at something something deeper it's getting at deeper parts of ourselves that go unexplored by reason and that's the space prayer operates. It's it's almost kind of to go back, reference back to the prophets. It's that moment where the city's surrounded and the prophet is with his servant, and the servant says, "You know, we're surrounded. What's going to happen? We're all going to die." And then he, the, the the prophet prays, "Lord, open his eyes to see." And then he sees that they're surrounded by chariots of fire. Right? There's this beautiful image that they realize that there's actually this heavenly army surrounding the city and encompassing them protecting them that that's prayer right prayer is that unveiling of like my deepest long i, I put it out there god I, I don't know what to say what to do what to feel what to think and so here's just me fully on full with all i have and pray as i pray i begin to see god at work in the world my eyes are open to see past maybe what's happening in a situation or what's going on and to see god at work and moving in the world and i think like poetry does that for us and it's why we use it to pray it's why the psalms are in poetry i also think too is like poetry allows us to process things again that our reason can't quite comprehend you know it's interesting. One of the most poetically structured books of the Bible is the book of Lamentations. The entire book of Lamentations is an acrostic poem. So here is this person using this, this, this writer using this incredibly taxing poetic form. Acrostic poems are, 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 are no, are no easy feat. And he's using it to talk about the darkest time in Jerusalem's history. 
Because there's some because maybe writing an essay about the fall of Jerusalem is just not gonna cut it when you're watching the city you love being torn to shreds and pillaged and the people in it being killed and murdered and robbed. And so like I, I, I truly believe that's why we use poetry for prayer. And why often if you listen to people pray, their prayers sound poetic. It, it, I think you know, we as children we learn poetry often before we learn prose. We learn nursery rhymes before we learn how to, how to read like you know novels and, and little short stories and things like that and so like I think we kind of you hear people pray and the repetition sometimes sometimes the cadence it's all very poetic and so inversely as we pray prayer allows us to have a creative mind shape to be sort of led and inspired in the beginning of Paradise Lost right John Milton invokes the Holy Spirit the great muse to guide him. In ancient Greek poetry, the, the idea of invoking the muses would say, hey, in order to write this thing out, I need some sort of divine aid. And I think for the artist, specifically the artist who believes, is then the person says, hey, listen, like I don't just create by myself. Tolkien says, I'm a sub-creator. I, I create based on what the great creator gives me. And so prayer then inversely helps inform my art in that way that I'm in tune with something God is saying or doing. So poetry then perhaps could serve as a bridge that reconnects the heart to the spirit and allows us to walk over the chasm of cynicism. I think so. I think it's that lifeline. It's the thing we don't know we need until we need it, which makes it sad that, you know, a lot of people don't read or interact with poetry on a day-to-day basis, which is why you talk, depending on the Christian tradition you're a part of, uh, it's why a lot of people, you know, they're, if they find it weird to like, oh, like you pray the Psalms and it's like, well, yeah. Cause like I, I need help when I pray and I need sometimes the words of another to get me over the bend. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for joining me today on the Makers and Mystics podcast. I could tell that we need to get together and have some coffee or a drink or something because we got hours of conversation <laughs> we could have on these subjects. But thanks so much for sharing your wisdom and your experience with our crew. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. <laughs>